Hi, I'm Dubba, I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Marcus O'Dare is an author, researcher, academic, music manager, consultant, broadcaster, and an accomplished musician. He's recently taken a position as Associate Dean of Knowledge Exchange and Enterprise at the University of the Arts in London. Before that, he established a Creative Entrepreneurship MA course at Middlesex University, and he's been featured on, presented, and written for the likes of the BBC, CNN, The Guardian, Independent, Financial Times, and The Irish Times. He's written biographies of famous artists, and he's edited a book about the history of Mute Records. He's now the author of a new book called Distributed Creativity, How Blockchain Technology Will Transform the Creative Economy. We sat down and had a chat at MTF Stockholm about all of this and more. Hope you enjoy. Marcus is somebody whose name I've come across on a number of occasions through my career in academia in a number of different guises, because you wear a number of different hats and you think about a number of different things, but there is a bit of a thread to all of them. Do you want to just sort of do a kind of a, how you describe yourself uh, in terms of what your interests are as an academic? Okay, well, I ended up in academia from, you know, playing music and writing about music. Um, completely, you know, what, what they would call a practice-based appointment. I was just appointed on the basis of someone who played music and managed music and wrote about music and talked about music on the radio. Since ending up in academia, I've become more of a researcher, I suppose, and... Um, I'd already written a book about Robert Wyatt, which is a popular press biography, but I've just written a book more recently, which is about blockchains and the impact they could have on creative industries. Um, not just music, although my job title is uh, Associate Professor in Music and Innovation at Middlesex, which is a university in London. Um, but actually, when you start looking at that, the, the problems and opportunities of a tech like Blockchain um, are quite similar across the verticals, so it's actually quite similar whether you're talking about a music file or a piece of digital art or whatever. So I ended up in that book looking at games and images and journalism and book publishing, but mainly music. Right. Still play a bit. Um, much less than I used to. I mean, because you were a signed artist <laughs> and everything, you were like uh, on the circuit. And yeah, I started off. I used to be. Uh, I mean, I'm not really a very classic session musician because I'm definitely no virtuoso. But I was a session musician with uh, an artist called Passenger before he had an international hit record. Um, but he already had a massive management deal. He was already managed by IE Music, who had made their fortune managing Robbie Williams. Well, they made their fortune in the 1970s, running Island Records and stuff like that. <laughs> as, as managers, they'd um, already made their money off that, that 80 million pound Robbie Williams deal. Uh, and so I did that for a period. And then m as a featured artist, I was signed an intertune with a duo called Grasscut, which we're still doing. Although to be honest, we don't, you know, I've got little kids, we don't tour very much. I manage it, I've always managed it, and it, I guess increasingly that's the side of it that I've enjoyed, which there's some crossover there with the academic side because it's it's basically about innovation management. In, in, you know, it's not like high-tech innovation, but it's basically someone's creative idea, how you monetize it. Right. In, in the kind of tradition of one of these things is not like the other, the Robert Wyatt thing sort of stands out as being... 
uh, kind of interesting that, that this is, obviously it was a passion for you because you wrote a whole biography. Uh, what's, the, what's the connection? Okay, so when I was doing much more um, journalism and I was also doing radio and there was a great period when I was presenting a music podcast for The Independent, which is a newspaper in the UK, but it was a collaboration with AIM, which is the Association of Independent UK record labels. So it was independent newspaper and independent music. And I had completely free reign as long as the people I put on the podcast were on an independent label. So it was great. I did weird things like kind of hanging out with Julian Cope, who's a sort of crazy, shamanistic, English, uh, psychedelic visionary. And in his uh, sort of World War II German officer gear, he took me around these Neolithic uh, <laughs> stones and stuff, which was a good day out. And then another day out that was even better was a day with Robert Wyatt. It was when he was, uh, Domino Records did a big anthology of all his independent solo records back to the 70s. And I had such a good day hanging out with him in his garden in Louth, which is a little village town in the north of England. Mm. It's like a day to get there from London. Uh, I had such a good time and, and I loved the music anyway. And he's, Robert White's a very unusual artist because he's you know, did, done Top of the Pops. He's done quite mainstream stuff. The Top of the Pops track was a cover of I'm a Believer, the track the Monkees did. Yeah although his version was quite weird, but it was a top 40 hit. And he had another top 40 hit during the Falklands War in the 80s with this kind of really anti-war track written specifically for him by Elvis Costello and Clive Langer, who was a producer from the time. Mm -hmm. So he, he sort of flirted with the mainstream, but then he did really, really weird things, avant-garde things, left-field jazz things, uh, recorded lots of revolutionary anthems from you know, Latin America, or just done all these weird things. Brilliant music and, and also like this thread of amazing collaborators because through the decades from the 60s, so we had Peter Jenner talking last night about UFO and that kind of early Pink Floyd period in London. Robert White was there, Soft Machine were parallel to Pink Floyd and he played on Sid Barrett records and stuff. But then, and he toured the States with Hendrix. Yeah. But then in the 70s, he's working with other artists uh, he's working with Brian Eno, or say, and then in the 80s, he's working with other writers again, like Paul Weller, or, and then he carries on. So a lot, you know, he's the same age as Bowie or McCartney or those kind of people. But his career, well, Bowie's career came back at the end, didn't it, in a sort of brilliant way? But McCartney's career, let's be honest, has sort of trailed off. Whereas Robert Wyatt, who was never up there with those guys commercially, but he's working with Bjork or Hot Chip in the last 15 years, and then nothing like that's happening elsewhere. And plus, sorry, that's a long answer, but you, you said it's a passion. The other thing about Robert Wyatt is there's so much not to do with the music. He's the first person in a wheelchair to play on top of the pops because he fell out of a window in 1974 when he was drunk. And he's a Marxist, and there's very few Marxists, in, even in popular music, or even anywhere now, like the hardline Soviet Marxists, <laughs> uh, which is basically what he is, like an old school right. lefty. Yeah. Um, so in all kinds of ways, it was just this story that had to be told and no one had told it. Right. You know, someone like Bowie, there's about 40 books on Bowie already, yeah. and I just didn't want to write the 41st. 
and was nothing on Robert Wyatt. So join the dots for me. Uh, obviously, there's a music connection and there's an innovation connection, I guess. But, but still, Robert Wyatt, to, I'm going to write a book about blockchains. Um, how do you get there? What was, what was the thing that sparked the blockchain thing for you? Okay, so... Um yeah, there's no connection. Apart from, we did a report a couple of years ago, Nick Mason, who's a mate, that's a connection that came a different way. So yeah, there, there's no link. It, what it was is that the Robert Wyatt project was a culmination of, before I was doing academia, much more like journalism and broadcasting stuff. When I moved into the more academic work, I started thinking about, okay, what's an interesting area of research, critical thinking, and I was looking for something current and industry-facing. And um, I guess, and this happened to be exactly around the time when people have started talking about blockchains. Um, I'd heard about Bitcoin, but I hadn't taken any notice, to be honest. I didn't see any relevance to what I was doing. Um, and I, so I was going to, uh, well, Imogen Heaps here says, so I was going to some of her early hack events, which were in 2015 in London, and there was a buzz about what was going on there. But also, I felt like there was a place where you could... There was, there was a massive opposition to what was... It's changed now. There was a massive opposition to what some of the blockchain people were saying from the big rights holders. Very, very negative comments by people like PPL and some of the, those type of people. And then mad evangelism from the startups. Yeah. And I was thinking that this is what academia can fit in. If you want a critical voice, that's somewhere in the middle. That, that's a good place. Right, right. But it's not just the technology of blockchain that you've looked at. You've written this from the point of view of how does this make sense for creative people? Yeah, so I've tried, as I say, to take our kind of middle way. Uh, so this book I've written, which is unbelievably fast for um, for the academic world, is only, you know, I'm literally... I've, I've got. A, I finished it last month. I'm looking at the proofs this month, and it'll be out next month, right. which is <laughs> not even the sort of timescale that popular press uh, usually works, let alone uh, the academic world. So that's great, and it means that it doesn't get out of date in a very dynamic and fast-moving kind of world. Uh, and the book is looking at opportunities with the technology, but also barriers to adoption, and also um, possible risks of adoption as well, which is like a neglected piece. Is that the I structure? Feel. Is it like a Pretty section much. on? Yeah. And introduction to the tech, introduction to how it's relevant to the creative industries, which is fascinating and a, to me a really clear use case, but often neglected. Um, I mean, in the worlds that we're all in, blockchain is quite a buzzy subject, but if you go to a mainstream blockchain event, uh, it's still seen as a sort of weird sideshow. Um, people are like, oh, music, okay. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the hype that we hear is... Uh, music industry is broken or unfair or wrong. Uh, blockchain is this technology that fixes that somehow, and then you apply blockchain to music industry, and then everything's fair. Uh, how close to the characterization is the reality? Well, I, you're never through a technology going to solve the people bit. And so people have got to use it. <laughs> and people have got to use it in a particular kind of a way. So I always think it's quite interesting to look at the parallel with banking, because in banking, um, I mean, the Bitcoin was invented to circumnavigate banks. It came along in the direct aftermath of the financial crisis. And yet 
there's now huge banking consortia pouring millions into it. Mm -hmm. And the same could happen. So the, the ways in which it can be used are enormously varied. And sometimes it's sort of presented like there's one way of using it. But Yeah, because that's a really interesting point. What does it do? Yeah. <laughs> well, lots of things. I mean, even a lot of what's being discussed, and I don't know if people were at the um, mycelia hack that was happening in, in parallel um, earlier in the week, but there's various blockchain startups there doing different stuff. And then there's other people doing stuff, say, with ticketing, which I don't, I wasn't at most of Imogen's hack this time, but I've been to lots of them. On, there are some people involved in using blockchain for live, but I don't think secondary ticketing people are part of the, that uh, umbrella, and mycelia is quite a big umbrella. Um, different people are using it for all kinds of different stuff. But are those kinds of different stuff all under the umbrella of money changing hands, or is there more to it than that? Uh, well, one of the sort of well, the most prominent book on blockchains is one that Don Tapscott wrote, who's a sort of management theorist with his son, Alex Tapscott, who's a blockchain um, CEO, I think, and they've set up something called the Blockchain Research Institute, and they've written a book called The Blockchain Revolution, and they call it the internet of value. So they said the first internet, the internet we all think of, is the internet of information, and that's great for transferring ones and zeros, but, and this is where the re relevance of the creators comes in, <laughs> it's not good for transferring value, and they talk about that to, to some extent in relation to creative industries, but in relation to all these other verticals as well. But it's kind of the same problem. If you transfer a digital file, you're not actually transferring the file, you're transferring a copy of the file. Right. And so you get content that can be infinitely um, copied with no loss of quality, whereas you know in the, the old analog days, there would have been some declining quality. Just to be clear, when you say value, you mean monetary value? Uh, well, yeah, uh, yes, I do. I mean, I would argue that there's you know, social value associated with the creative industries as well. But no, I'm, yes, I'm talking about financial value, yeah. And presumably if you've written a book, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. What's the end? What's the, you know, reveal for the, us? Uh, okay, spoiler alert. Yeah, the end is that, yeah, at the moment, blockchains are underperforming technologically. There are, um, there's massive scalability issues with blockchains. So a lot of the things people are proposing are impossible. Although it's changing fast. I mean, even here last night, someone showed me something on his phone, which is not like a different, it's just like a potentially stage on to anything I've seen before. So things are changing <laughs> fast and you don't always know what everyone's doing because everyone's behind NDAs. And so sometimes someone will show you something in private that they can't put in public. And so it's hard to keep up. But the, the, the conclusion is basically, this is a potentially transformative technology. The fact that it's underperforming at, in the short term is no problem in the longer term. That's the case with all disruptive technologies. Mm -hmm. They always underperform at first, and that's not the way to write them off. But the problem is that adoption, it, the, the tech is only a tool. How do we adopt? Well, it depends who is adopting, because there are already kind of long tail adoptions. So, like uh, two or three years ago, there were people doing projects with completely unsigned artists. Like there's there's a startup called BitTunes, which is still around. They only work with artists who are not signed, and that makes it relatively easy because you're not dealing with big rights holders. But on the other hand, it's hard to get traction because they're, they're not artists with big followings. Right now, you've got Bjork. Had, did a crypto project, other bigger artists have started to do stuff, and that's how 
people start to take notice. And there was big umbrella projects. Sure, because it seems very fragmented. There is, there is a, a basically a blockchain per song that's released on a blockchain. And uh, like there's the tiny human, there's the Björk thing, there's the... Uh, and is that a problem of interoperability? Or, how, you know, what, is that causing problems? Uh, there are people looking at interoperability in general because this is a recognized problem that the whole point of blockchains is supposed to be about getting rid of silos and we could just make a whole load of new silos. <laughs> so much beyond music, there are people looking at interoperability and there are these big organizations. I mean, Mycelia, as I said, Image and Heaps um, project is kind of an umbrella and then there's a big umbrella which is based in Berkeley, which is the Open Music Initiative, mm -hmm. OMI. But again, there's about 200 companies now, I think, in OMI. Some of them huge. I mean, the major labels in Spotify and people are part of OMI. So lo and behold, it doesn't move at 100 miles an hour. Um, the things that move faster are the long tail ones, but then, then you've got the adoption problem. There is a theory that the reason that all of these organizations are involved in this uh, project is because that is the opportunity to sabotage the project. Mm -hmm. Is there any truth in that, do you think? I haven't seen that happening myself, but you would be naive to think that wasn't part of the motivation. Mm. But also there's, there's use cases for them that are just about efficiency. And that is obviously going to be of interest. So you could well have, you know, the majors, it, it will take a mindset change for people not to be proprietary about their data, which is how you get the real value of a blockchain. Otherwise you could talk about some other kind of database. The, the next kind of chapter of the book, if you're going to sort of write, you know, issue number two, seems to be there's a lot of things that are coming out about blockchains that are not about blocks nor chains. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and these new technologies that are about the same sorts of things, but that actually kind of s circumvent the, the kind of the blockchain methodology. Is that kind of part of the same family or how does this work? I think of them as part of the same family, yeah. Some people make a distinction between blockchains and... DLTs, which is distributed ledger technologies, and yes, there are these things. I mean, for instance, there's one called IOTA, uh, which isn't really running on a blockchain at all, but it's, it's running on a tangle. It. Runs on a tangle, exactly. Which is what? <laughs> well, it is uh, a DAG, which is what came up in our research day yesterday. It's just it's a blockless. A blockchainless blockchain. It's, a, it's, a it's the same family. Chainless. It's the same family of technologies, <laughs> yeah. and I mean, I think that that it's a, what a lot of people have said about blockchains, and I found this in my own teaching. Actually, I've used it. Did an interesting project with my, in my own outside the whoever wanted to. Actually, one of the students involved with this is now working for Imogen, mm. so that's like a success story, I'm, which I'm proud of. But. And it was part of my own process of trying to come to understand this was anyone who's interested come to these workshops and we're going to talk through and we ended up having academics from computer science who are interested in Bitcoin, academics from music and students all kind of talking it through from these different angles. And the thing that came up was that it was just a thought experiment to say, imagine you had nothing, what would you build? And Imagine you were starting again, clean slate. And the funny thing is that what you end up with is something pretty similar to what you have now, because you actually, most of the intermediaries do add value in my view. This is potentially the end of those that don't, but most of them do. It's just about two things. One, do they take too large a cut? And two, do they slow up the payment flow too much so that creators are waiting months or years to get paid? So could you just move their position in that value chain, they still take their cut, but everyone gets paid at the same time. 
instead of this person pays that person and that person pays the next person and so on and you just have an inefficient system which if you start to design the system from now you would never come up with but historically that was the way that it's been done and that has been very valuable just in itself just to think it through from scratch. Just finally, if there was a metaphor to help us understand blockchains, if we were sort of still struggling with this as a concept, because it is very abstract, uh, for people like me who don't program computers, I, I kind of get what it is, but I need a metaphor. It's like electricity for you know something, or it's like the internet for whatever. How do you describe it to people who, like me, are a bit kind of... Well, dumb? yeah, lots of people have been struggling for this and trying out these various uh, analogies, and I know that coders don't like this one. It's technically, it's not quite right, but I still like the Google Docs without Google, because it captures the idea that things are uh, synchronized as one source of truth, but it's got that sense of taking out the big corporate middleman. And so, yeah, apologies to any coders, but that's the nearest, I think, that we've got. Okay. Marcus Odea, what's the book called? Uh, Distributed Creativity. There we go. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Marcus O'Dea, now running Knowledge Exchange and Enterprise at the University of the Arts in London. His book, Distributed Creativity, How Blockchain Technology Will Transform the Creative Economy, is out now. And that's the MTF podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any thoughts on this or any feedback at all, please do drop me a note. I'm dubba at musictechfest.net. Would love to hear from you. Don't forget in the meantime to subscribe, review, like, post it to Facebook, tweet a link or screenshot, send it on to a friend on Snapchat, slack it to a colleague, whatever it is you do to spread the word. Much appreciated. Thank <laughs> you.